Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland, where we're devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. Today's Thursday, June 29th. I'm Dan Malthrop. I'm the chief executive here. And it's my privilege to introduce our speaker today and to ask him a few questions as well. It's Brian Moynihan. He's the CEO of Bank of America. As the country and world grapple with the aftermath of the pandemic, inflation, supply chain disruptions, the banking industry has felt its share of well, we'll call it volatility. In March, three small to mid-sized U.S. banks failed, leading to a chain of events that we now refer to as the 2023 banking crisis. And on top of this, add to this the widespread calls for increased equity, access to economic opportunity, and the increasing reliance on emerging technologies, it's evident that the world of banking and finance is changing quite a bit. Brian Moynihan became CEO of Bank of America in January of 2010, which feels like, like like a century ago, honestly. <laughs> but no, I, it feels like, well, it's, well yeah, anyway. Um, it, but that was a long time ago. It's the, uh, yeah, Bank of America is the second largest bank in the U.S. J you're all wondering what's the first. It's J.P. Morgan Chase. Um, he leads a team of approximately 215,000 employees dedicated to making financial lives better for people, for companies of all sizes, for institutional investors across the U.S. and around the world. We're very grateful to have him here today to get his perspective on the economy, the industry, and global trends shaping both. If you're a part of our live stream audience during the second half of the, of the program, you can get a question in by texting it to 330-541-5794. You can also tweet your question at the City Club, and we will work it into the program. Members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join me in welcoming Brian Moynihan. chance to be with my team earlier and it's good it's great to be here good to see the city well welcome back to Ohio as I said before um, Brian was born in Marietta um, so let's just start out talking about where the economy is right now as you 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 see it with a lot more data than the rest of us see it yeah so we you know the Bank of America research team uh, run by Candace Browning Platt and is the best in the world and they had continued to look at the situation and, and they've basically been pretty consistent for about a year and a half that there will be a, a mild recession. The question is when will it occur? And they've continuously pushed that out a little bit. And most recently, they moved a two quarters of recession, the first two quarters of next year from the third, fourth, and first quarters, three quarters. So it's a mild recession. It, it, it happens a few quarters out and that's been the thing is, is people keep predicting a few quarters out and it just keeps pushing out. And that comes down to, we could talk about what you see in the data, what consumers are doing, employment levels are strong and all those types of Is there of any things. possibility that there won't be a recession if we just keep pushing it out? Well, <laughs> the interesting question is, you know, people ask what it will feel like and you're saying, it'll feel like it already, inflation already makes consumers feel different. Higher interest rates make consumers feel different. But so the belief is if for the Fed, for the, Two things had to happen to get inflation under control. You had to raise interest rates and you had to pull 
uh, some of the money out of the system, and, and both are being accomplished. Um, and they're having the impact that people want. So housing slows down, car purchases slow down, everything is very rate sensitive, moves quickly, and then it takes a little time to get through it. But the interesting thing is consumers are still spending. And so, but the rate of, if you look at our consumers, they spend about four and a half trillion dollars a year out on their check and debit cards, writing checks, cash out of the ATM they spend, et cetera, ACH, wire, Zelle, et cetera. You, you know, that goes out a, a year. And if you looked at it from 21 to 22, it grew about 9.5%. And if you look at it year to date, it's 5-ish percent. And if you look at it in the month of June so far, it's 4-ish you know, percent. And that is more consistent with where it was in 17, 18, 19, where you had higher interest rates and, uh, and uh, they're slowing down the economy and taking monetary accommodation out. But you had low growth and low inflation. And so that consumer change in activity is a, is a indicator that the effect of the rates, the effect of the, all the different factors is slowing down the economy. And that's very important because that's the hard thing. To, the American consumer spends, likes to spend money, travels, does a lot of good things. And when they're employed at the level of 3.7% unemployment, you know, it's hard to slow them down, but they've slowed them down enough that I think that that means inflation should get under control. So they slowed them down. I mean, there was a lot of excess liquidity uh, for consumers during, you know, post-pandemic. Yeah. And so if you listen to experts, the whole, the 30% drop in the economy in COVID for a quarter and then a, uh, the next quarter was down, I think, uh, double digits. And then basically you came back that you almost recovered. Mm -hmm. So it was very needed to put a lot of stuff to work fast because you never knew what the next quarter was going to look like. So you, if it's hard to remember all the things, PPP, all the stuff came into the economy. It's emotionally triggering, <laughs> yeah, actually, when you talk about and, it. And all that stuff happened. Um, and then you got all the way through 20, and it became clear economies were starting to open up, and, and we were grinding back up. Still high unemployment and things that were very serious, and a uncertain pathway of what would happen next. People, you look back now, you say, well, we knew that. We, we knew none of that. You know, no, masks weren't a thing for the first three or four weeks, everybody thought it was moved by hands, remember? So we didn't know that, what we think we know now, we didn't know. And so what, what, happened, so what happened is they kept throwing things at it on the worry what's gonna happen next. And then in early 21, you had two big stimulus. And if you look backwards, far ex all that stimulus far exceeds the depth, the hole. So if you think of the economic hole as being a, a pothole, yeah. we didn't just fill a pothole. It, we went way so in above. In retrospect, it. it looks like an overcorrection, but it, it was needed because yeah, you didn't know. You didn't know, and that then drove inflation. So there's no. It's hard to criticize because nobody knew, but that drove inflation. Then the Fed's on the other side and saying, "Whoa!" And so even our consumers' accounts, when you look today, for customers that were customers in the beginning of twenty, that had an average two to five thousand dollars in account, they averaged about thirty-five hundred at that time. Mm -hmm. They still have about thirteen thousand in that same account this late. And so everybody thought they spent it down. It's, it's, it moved down a little bit last year and moved back up around tax return. And so that's an indicator that what's happening is it'll take a little longer to get through the system. And so they're slowing down their spending now. Student loan repayment starts. There's a lot of things that will be dragged. It's a core interest rate environment and all that does. And then secondly, the Fed is taking money on a banking system by raising rates to the point where direct ownership or treasures, other things move money out of the system, so that's why deposits are coming back down. It's meant to happen. When you describe, when you tell the story that way, it actually sounds to me like a pretty resilient economy managed by fairly capable people. I think it's a, it's extremely resilient economy because 
of what America is. You know, it's, it's entrepreneurship, capitalism, yeah, profit making, and all that then just creates a lot of activity. It's sizable. And so think about it. We're, you know, we're at 3.7% unemployment or whatever. I mean, that's like all-time low levels in our country. Very rarely has been below this level. And so that's pretty, it's not only resilient, but it's because this country attracts capital and activity like no other place does. The, the crisis earlier this year, though, how did that look from, you know, from your point of view, from your vantage point as CEO of this enormous financial institution? Well, it, it was, when the rate structure went up so fast and certain business models couldn't withstand at that. And that, that's not unusual because those of you who are, are as old as I am, you, you can go back and remember the thrift crisis and you can remember the dot-com crisis and you can remember the fallen angels crisis, we call it, when the large companies failed in the United States in the 2000 area and stuff. And you, you think about all that, there's always things that happen in periods of fast adjustment. And the rate rise was the fastest that, that people know. And it went to levels that, you know, were very different than people had experienced because you know, from 2008 really to 2017 or 18, the rate structure was zero and then it moved up to about two and a half. And then they people forget the Fed was actually cutting rates at the end of 19 because they thought they'd overshot and were bouncing back. So an idea of a 5% Fed funds rate, you know, the idea right. of, so all that caught people who had business models were consistent, but they're very different business models than the average bank. And I think that's what people sort of saw on the outside. So at the time, you weren't sure how far this would go, but once you got by the first few weeks of it, frankly, and a group of us stepped in and tried to help one of the companies and the things took place and the, the, liquid, the sales took place on a more early basis, uh, people settled back and took a look at it. Things calmed down. It's basically been relatively calm since then. We still have the question of what's the economy going to look like and is there going to be a deep recession, a shallow recession. All that's always ahead of us. But Apparently but three quarters ahead and it'll last exactly. two quarters. Yeah, don't worry. By tomorrow they'll come up and tell me to push it out another quarter. It's been um, you, and, you, and by the way, we just got the stress test results for our industry yesterday. If you look at the congratulations credit Congratulations on those, I was going to say. Just, but if you look at it, what that says for the eight big banks, they have not, 900 plus billion dollars of capital, the losses I think are 130 billion. If you look at across the 30 banks, you know, they say, oh, there's not whatever, 100 billion losses, but that's against multiples of that of capital. So it's a pretty impressive thing, because that scenario is basic unemployment going from where it is today up to 10 plus percent overnight. Commercial real estate dropping immediately. Home prices down uh, 20, 30 percent or something like that. You know, these factors, uh, bond prices dropping by 300 basis points and you know, stuff that are just wild. And yet the ability of the industry to withstand that is, is demonstrated by this testing. But the real ability to withstand it was demonstrated by the fact of where we are when you had the massive movement, uh, you know, huge monetary buildup, huge monetary takeout, interest rates rising fast, deposits moving out of the system fast on purpose. It's intended outcome. What the Fed's trying to do is to shrink the size of the bank industry so it cannot lend as much, therefore not quite inflationary activity. You know, all that took place. And you survived, then you have this theoretical test, and it right. also shows, and you're sort of yeah, saying, like, that's a pretty good outcome. Yeah, well also, like, I mean, the theoretical test, these models, I mean, like, it, they're nothing compared to what we've all been through. Yeah, um, they're meant to emulate it, uh, yeah. imitate it, and, no, and simulate it, but, uh, but the reality is, is it's, everything's different than the models, but the models show you sort of the parameters of outcomes. Yeah. I want to circle back to the, to the crisis earlier yeah. this year. You mentioned the, the best research yeah. team in the, on the planet, I think, yeah. earlier. Um, that's predicting this, this two-quarter recession next year. 
um, did they predict failures of, of, of some of these other smaller banks? I, d I don't think anybody, uh, no, nobody really, when, when things change, you're always saying sort of, it's like you know, looking for the pee under the mattress. You're always trying to figure out what this change will cause through a system. Because mm -hmm. that's, that's, so Jeff Green, our chief risk officer, and all these guys are always saying, okay, that happens, Where, where's the, where's the uh, collateral damage, so to speak? And I didn't see a lot of people had that. And that's because I think just the, the rate of change was different and uh, because of the uniqueness of the business models. And that's why it hasn't gone elsewhere, and that's, it, we'll see it play out. But right now, I mean, banks, one of the things is people forget that if you go back and, you know, from the 80s till now, there's been 2,000 bank failures or something like that. I mean, it's, it, 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 they're businesses, and yeah. sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't work so much. And so, you know, and that's, that's what, and large ones have failed. In Cotton, Illinois in 1984, Bank of New England in 1991, uh, a different republic in Texas in, uh, in the same time frame, Southeast Bank Corp. Uh, you, you go through, uh, uh, Wamu, uh, IndyMac, you know, there's been large, big top You do this like you're banks. naming like the, the, the players from the 1948 Indians or something. Uh, <laughs> Remember this the, and this I, I couldn't do that. I could, I, unfortunately, I was a, a Reds fan growing up. So oh, that's, that is unfortunate. <laughs> actually, um, actually, it wasn't unfortunate. It was very fortunate because that was a, the glory years of the, the Big Red Machine. It was a little um, better than being a Cleveland fan at the time. Well, hey, <laughs> hey. <laughs> Okay, well, for the benefit of our radio audience on Friday, which tomorrow, um, I'll just mention that we're talking with uh, Reds fan yeah. Brian Moynihan. Um, <laughs> he well, also well, happens to be the CEO that's, of Bank of America. A, um, the, uh, in the wake of the... I actually remember coming up here. They used to do Little League Day at the, uh, the team. And public I remember coming up from, and driving the, uh, three hours, four hours up here and to watch a doubleheader and drive back and you know, it was always like April, May, it was always cold as heck, but, um, <laughs> but it was, you know, it was, it was always a great, a lot of fun and that, you know, the lake out there and, and uh, baseball, uh, eight hours of baseball was a good day, so. The same, the same field where, where, you know, where Larry Doby and Satchel Paige played, it's a big deal. Actually, I remember watching Blue Moon Odom pitch, I think he hit two home runs, but that could be a false memory, so I could know. <laughs> I think, I, it sounds like fact. As a we'll pitcher, go. as a, as a pitcher, it. I think he did, I think he hit two home runs. Um, you know, I want to ask you about housing and the banking industry's role in supporting the housing market, both around housing production, which is a challenge right now, housing affordability on the mortgage lending side, and in particular in a, a market like Cleveland, where I, I just want to point out a couple things. Bank of America has opened two branches, two, you know, two branches in, in greater Cleveland that are, that are in low to moderate income neighborhoods, which is really meaningful. Um, I also should have pointed out, too, that Bank of America is a sponsor of City Club programming. I should disclose that at the beginning. I apologize. Um, but what do you think the bank can do to provide more access to that kind of home ownership opportunity for the low to moderate income families that are looking for the, the $50,000 house or the, or the $100,000 house, yes. not the jumbo loan? Well, so a couple things. One of, one of the things is we come to a market like Cleveland and have 12 uh, financial centers and go to 15, what, what that's really representative is actually, we have eight lines of business in our company, it's actually bringing 
everything, all the businesses to, to Cleveland. Because before we had commercial banking and we had uh, Merrill Lynch and we had some private banking, but, and, and that was like a lot of cities. But by complete historical accident, i.e. we didn't buy a company somewhere along the road where all these thousands of banks that got consolidated for us. We didn't buy, buy a company to have, to have branches in the Buckeye State. I mean, just, just by pure accident. There's no, there wasn't any rhyme or reason. So you get done with all that, and then it's time to fill it out. So we start doing that. But when we do that, and this is what really what we want to see there is exactly what we have in places like Washington, D.C., where we've been there and have high market share, or Charlotte, or L.A., or Boston, or whatever. And so you, you build out with a balance towards all the customers you're going to serve. And that means that it, in the 4,000 branches we have, 30% are in LMI neighborhoods. So when you come to Cleveland, you're going to have the same percentage uh, just because that's how you serve the business. So, and I just was out at the branch today on uh, Carnegie in the 79th, I guess. Yeah. And so, you know, that's went into community, and that community is uh, important to like the city together, as Cashman was explaining to me. And, you know, those are good things. So now talk about housing. If you look across all the cities uh, that I, I'm on the CEO groups in different cities, and you talk to the people, and I think, you know, housing, stock, availability, it, affordability, whatever the particular issue, it's a different issue, but it's a consistent issue. Um, and that issue is typically development, a question on the one hand, and so in Charlotte, we're 30,000 units short. You know, it, just don't have the units to house people. In other places, you might be the units you have aren't fitted for purpose. In other places, the units might not be in the right locations. And so there's always a work. So how do we play into that? We basically think about three basic, three big things. One is the regular mortgage business, which we do all types of mortgages too. So um, we do agency qualified mortgages and jumbo mortgage and everything in between. So you're doing that, and that's standard credit terms, 20% down payment, et cetera, et cetera, what goes through the, the programs. Then you have in uh, uh, a specialized program. And what we've learned over the years on these specialized programs, especially for first-time home buyers, is that you need, we need to work with agencies in the local communities to help identify the buyers, but also help, help counsel the buyers, because buying a home is a big step. And the worst thing about buying a home is to not have a workout well. And that's where we work. So that's a $15 billion commitment that we use up and then we do it again and we'll do several billion of that every year with a whole bunch of agencies across and those programs will be available in this market are available. I shouldn't say will be, are available. Um, and then the third element is development. And we do about $5 billion of housing development work a year and programs lending the uh, loan money income developments, mixed use developments, but all sort of in, uh, in that, uh, that vein, it's, it's not the stuff done in a regular commercial real estate business. And that business goes on and that has a role. And then what we perceived also as a lack of equity uh, for developers are going to take a little more risk in really in the uh, helping parts of cities go. And so we've put up an equity fund in a place like Charlotte with a group of us to kind of give sort of sweat equity to help developers move faster. And those are good programs that you know, our team can help people figure out how to do here, but it, it takes all that type of stuff. So it takes the regular way stuff because you just got to do it well, and it takes the specialized program stuff, and then it takes the, the you know, development of unit stuff, and then it takes putting developers in business sometime that um, otherwise might not be able to get the equity to do it. Mm -hmm. I want to pull back for a second out of the, the sort of tactics yeah. of the business yeah. itself and, and to a, a bigger question. Um, in 2022, in your annual report, there's a, a headline that says, 
we are capitalists. It, it, I, it was really shocking. We are capitalists at Bank of America, which seems self-evident to me, but apparently not self-evident to everybody. Why did you have to call that out in the, in the annual report in that way? Because I get asked the question and, uh, a lot, you know, it, it, congressional testimony or by both sides of the aisle, you know, are you a capitalist, which I think is a funny question to be asked if you... If you're running a bank. I have the honor of running a company. <laughs> it, our, our sole purpose in life is to help everybody participate in capitalism. Individuals, companies, hourly workers to the richest people in the world, small companies to big companies, capital markets participants. That's why our are they, Why are they asking the question? Because the, the debate is about how you do capitalism and you know, stakeholder capitalism and all these things. And so, but the reality is, is capitalism is the only system that is going to solve the problems the world wants to solve. And that's, that's the thing that we're, uh, everybody's trying to work on. So if you're going to have an energy transition, it is going to be the private sector that drives it. Governments don't have the money. You can't regulate it because it's just very hard because it's across every place in the world, so it's tricky. So where are you going to get the money to do it? You're going to get the money having new oil companies do it. You're going to get the money to have new, oil, new energy companies do it. You're going to get the money by showing those, having that capital come in, that equity come in, that talent come in, the lending come in, and you can do it. And so, you know, but then, so when you talk about it, we're funding renewable energy, people say, well, you're not a capitalist because that's a, you know, that's, you're doing that to be green. You're saying, no, I'm doing it because it, we did 150 million of it last year. You know, it's 150 billion of it, excuse me, last year. That's a big business, you know, so, and, and so, uh, and uh, if you look at, we disclose that the tax benefits from the renewable deals we do, you know, are worth about, I don't know, three quarters of a billion dollars a, qu a quarter for us, so that's pretty interesting. So if, uh, tax, so if, they, if Congress is enacting tax benefits to do, to do these deals, and you don't do the deals, you're leaving money on the table, and, right, and, and then you're the yet, bad capitalist. And yet the purpose is to how bad to... Bad capitalist, <laughs> no... Yeah. Basis point. So, so the idea. So if that's so that's the debate. And so I, you know, and I think we we as maybe I, I'm getting old, but um, but we as people been around a while have to show the, the the cohorts come behind us that major companies who are strong companies who can do great things can do it in a way that society benefits and the shareholder benefits. It's profits and purpose. Jim Collins, a great business writer, he built the last of all the books he did, in 1996 talked about the genius of the ant, profits and purpose. If you go back and, and talk about stakeholder capitalism, which is, it's about, you know, when people say, how could, how could you, you know, what do you think about that? I said, well, you think it's a pretty good thing if we do great things for our clients? Oh, yeah. That's easy. Do great things for our teammates? Oh, yeah. Do great things for our shareholders? Oh, yeah. Do great things for our communities? Oh, yeah. That's stakeholder capitalism. I mean, you know, how could that, you know, how could you say that's bad? So I think that's... Well, I think Milton Friedman said that it was bad. Well, he, right. he did and he did. If you actually read more of what he said, he actually says more than that, which is you've got to deliver profits and purpose, not profits or purpose. And that's, that's the, it's a genius of the end, not the tyranny of the or. And that's what Jim Collins used. So Klaus Schwab's manifesto, so-called, Davos, a created Davos, which everybody... You know, it, that was really he and Milton having an intellectual debate about what they each are going to say. But come forward a bunch of years, you know, major companies around the world are trying to run their business the way they're doing what is right, which is showing how capitalism will solve these problems by, by driving that. And that, that, it, it won't happen otherwise. Think about 190 countries signed onto the thing called the Sustainable Development Goals. So 
there aren't many countries in the world past 190 so. And so they all signed it. Because they told us what they want from the system. And the point is, if you look at that, it takes $6 trillion a year. Where's the money going to come from? Charity is wonderful. We do $500 million of charity in our company a year. There's great philanthropists in this, in this city that have been around for years doing stuff. All the charitable giving in a year is about trillion two. Can't do it. And by the way, it does a lot of good things. The art museums don't count in this stuff, you know, et cetera. And you said, okay, what are the governments going to do? Our government's running a, four, a trillion dollar a year structural deficit, and we're the only government with any money, you know, so think about it. So they don't have any extra money. So where's it going to come from? All these business people, by employing good people, hiring good people, investing money, driving it, but doing it in a way that delivers the profits they need to drive the company, plus pays attention to what else they do. That's and the purpose, and doing, doing the right thing for clients or communities and things. And, and so that's hard to argue about. And, I, I, and that's what we're trying to, that's how we run our company, and that's what we call responsible growth, and we've been doing it a lot of years. And so we're one of uh, four companies in the U.S. that have earned more than $15 billion for eight years. And we already earned $8 billion in the first quarter this year, so my guess is we'll get nine. And so, you know, it's a, and there's only four, uh, four out of all the companies that are listed in the U.S., to give you a sense. You can do it. And I, those other companies have do the same thing. And so it can be big and do it. But it's, but it's the idea of doing both in the and, not or. And when you do that, that $6 trillion can be found. When you do that, you can have the energy transition by having the oil companies use their expertise to figure out how to do it, by having the steel companies figure out how to change the way they can get hydrogen in place of natural gas in place of coal, you know, by thinking through the transformation. That's, that's what's important. But you've got to work with these companies, not doing it. And that's, that's the debate is often you ought not to do business with extra. You don't pay attention to that. We sit there and say, how do we help companies make the transition that we've got to make in that particular element? Or how do we help, uh, you know, do great things for employees. Uh, you know, we start at $46,000 a year in our company, full benefits, career mindset. We do that because it's an economic best interest for our shareholders to have a teammate who works f for 50 years in our company. Right. You know, we have 200,000 people. Each 1% of turnover, I've got to hire 2,000 plus people every year. Person's not really effective. Six months, three months, you pick a number. You start to say how many, so each 1%, so the difference between 15% and 7%, which is what we went back to after the Great Resignation, 7%, that's 15,000 people we won't hire this year and have the same headcount. Mm -hmm. that's, but that's because the career mindset. Mm -hmm. Just coming back for a second to this bigger question yeah. about what capitalism, the purpose of capitalism, and the relationship that it has with democracy. Yeah. Um, the, the questions you were getting, you know, were you know, from senators yeah. and, and, and House members who are asking you, you know, during com committee hearings and so forth. Um, and it sounds like, from your point of view, it's not a terribly productive question, and there are other questions perhaps they ought to be asking. Um, what would you, and this is essentially a, you know, kind of a macro public-private yeah. partnership, right? right, to make capitalism work better for the benefit of all. What would you like to see our elected office holders focusing their attention on? Sure. So I think to make it concrete as opposed to theoretical, if you th think about in the energy area, um, we, I work at a bunch of private companies that have consistently uh, worked in a thing called the Stainless Markets Initiative, and we worked with Prince Charles, now King Charles, who helped form this. And we just, it's a bunch of people, all CEOs, saying, how do we think about this? All different industries. And so at some point, 
we were asked to put our positions in front of the G7. So I went to Cornwall and spoke to the G7 and I, on the energy, because it can make it concrete. I said, we don't need money. That was my opening phrase. And I said, we don't need money. And they looked at and I said, we need permitting, because you're not going to get this stuff built unless you figure out how to get permitted faster. It, it takes seven years to get a windmill from start to finish. It actually takes a lot longer than that. So everything that's going on now out, out there is from 2015 or 16. Think of how little we talked about the energy transition 2015-16. Think of how much goes on today. And then go out seven years and you're going to see numbers that you can't believe, right? So you've got to permit. So you, you take an asset that's going to be deployed seven years out and make it five years out or three years out, the economics change dramatically. You need to uh, help with your purchase power create activity. So the example of that is the UK post office agreed to buy a bunch of uh, hydrogen-powered trucks. They're going to market. Now they can figure out if they can sell them to other people, but all those trucks, it gives them a market so you can start to build the hydrogen facility and load the trucks into it. Yep, as an example, we asked them to reform the MDBs. This is not a U.S. question, but in the countries outside the U.S., in developing countries, the multilateral development banks are the end lenders, the end suppliers of capital, and what you want them to be is a risk taker offers. So they leave us to put the capital up because then they can crowd in a bunch of capital. And, you know, and that's the kind of thing to make. So that's, that's the public private partnership. These are all elected officials. You're saying, do these things. Um, and we can then crowd in a lot more private capital and it'll take off. So if you're trying to do like we just did, you know, a bunch of solar installations and across, you know, are trying to do across multiple countries in, in Africa, it's a little tricky to go through all those geographies and figure out all the political risk and currency risk and everything. Where the, the multilateral development bank can take part of that away. And then the money comes flying at it. And then you have trillions of dollars at the task. That's what you're trying to do. That's how the partnership can work between democratic elected, democratically elected officials or elected officials and, and business is to think about where they enable and accelerate, not where they, uh, where they uh, try to contain and other things. That, that, contain, that just causes leakage everywhere. Mm -hmm. And the last thing we said is take the disclosure that we had built from industry com companies that we'd done through the National Business Council, the World Economic Forum, and give them to them and use those and quit making us try to figure out 15 different patterns of disclosure. And the reason why that is we spend all this, all this time and effort trying to write down the disclosure as opposed to actually doing the work. And, and, and every time somebody changes the rules, we have a different thing in the multinational setting. So you, know, so you try to be pragmatic about that. That then makes the partnerships work. And so there, the IRA is a catalytic investment vehicle but it's going to take all private money to make it work. There's research dollars in there, some other starts. But all the money's going to come from all the people in this room, and all the know-how to actually get it done is going to come from people in this room. But the tax credits and other things provide the catalyst to make it happen. Those are good things from government. We're going to get to questions from all of you in a second. Um, my last question, I have like 18, but I had to okay. just choose one. Um, so uh, my last question is kind of what are you worried about? We, we, we worry about everything. I mean, it, it's, yeah. We have 7,000 teammates at risk, and they help us worry about everything. So, um, you know, if you look forward to real, so the idea of a mild recession in the U.S., it, you know, some people say it's optimistic. Some people say it's pessimistic, because now the idea of no recession has actually gotten more credence. But the, the, there was a time when you'd say a mild recession, they thought you were being optimistic. But the idea of a mild recession in the U.S. has some dependencies. And those dependencies are that 
you know, the Fed doesn't overshoot too far. Those dependencies are that the situation, um, the ground war in Europe, the Russian invasion of Ukraine doesn't get worse, doesn't escalate into other uh, uh, countries. China ends up not, China, you know, China, Taiwan, and all that stuff doesn't go crazy. It doesn't have some go, you know, between the U.S. and China, the relationship break down. You have some sanctions or something like that. You know, those are, th those are things that depend on. But if you keep Europe relatively stable, keep the U.S. relatively stable, the, the world consumer is relatively stable. Um, and a lot, of the, a lot of the two biggest economies are stable, and those two big economies you know, are a big part of stability. And then you know, if India's in pretty good shape, which it is, and China hangs in there, then a lot of the economic risk goes out. But all those have these geopolitical risks around them, which you can't control. You just have to really react to all right. Brian Moynihan is CEO of Bank of America. We're about to begin the audience Q&A. I'm Dan Malthrop again, uh, Chief Executive here at the City Club. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, and those of you joining us via our live stream at cityclub.org. Um, if you're listening on the radio, it's Friday, and this was actually pre-recorded on Thursday, so there's no questions from you. Um, <laughs> but if you would like to get in a question right now, Tweet it at, uh, at the City Club or text it to 330-541-5794 and we will work it into the program. May we have our first question, please? Yes, I'm sorry. I thought we were going to the other side. Uh, the first question is a text question. The millennial generation's wealth is slight, uh, significantly behind Generation X and Boomers. They came of age during 9-11 and the Great Recession and set back again during the pandemic. Some call them the unluckiest generation. Others see it as outcomes of policy set by older generations to hoard wealth. What are you seeing in terms of wealth gain opportunities for what is currently the largest generation in the country? And what will happen to the country's economic situation in 10 to 20 years if millennials don't catch up? Uh, so I, I think we're research platforms like ours are all do this, which at any time you take a snapshot and the people who are on average age and up have more assets than people average age and down because of course they've, they've accumulated for a long period of time. So, you know, I, I think that that asset, that value transfers over time. It just does. It, it transfers by active earnings versus passive earnings. It transfers by a lot of things. And so I think, you know, going back to questions about capitalism, you know, in this country there's fabulous entrepreneurial opportunities for all people. And you see millennials have, you know, created fabulous uh, uh, companies and done things that have, and, 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 and likewise. So I, I don't, you know, these snapshots act as if everything stays the same for the exact same people over time. And, you know, if, you know, I have kids that are in, they argue about who's in the millennial and who's not, but um, if, you, if, you, <laughs> if you go back and look at that age bracket and you think of where any of us were at that age bracket, you would have a different view of your earning power, your wealth, your accumulation and stuff. And so I, I think these things work. I'll, I'll broaden back to something, I, a little bit different question. But anyway, I think if millennials in this country are going to have a chance to participate and earn, have had a chance, will have a chance, and will continue to have a chance in a phenomenal period of this country's growth. And so. What gives you some confidence when the world says AI is going to take away all the jobs and their life's going to change? The, a time before when we all sat in a, as a country and had a lot of stuff going on that wasn't good was the late 60s. 
you had Japan Inc. was going to take over the United States, right? All the manufacturing and a good manufacturing part of the country that we're sitting in now is like everything went. Steel industry, everything, you pick it. You had um, the political unrest. You had two assassins. You had, you know, Martin Luther King got assassinated, and, and you were telling me, Dan, that historically Bobby Kennedy spoke here shortly yeah. after that. Then Bobby Kennedy got assassinated about in early 68, and the violence after that and the unrest after that was, you know, up there. We had the Vietnam War. We had Kent State in 1972, right? And where the governor of a state ordered the National Guard to shoot the kids protesting. We had an impeachment, Nixon. We had the war. We had the personal computer coming on. And if you go back and look, Peter Drucker, the famous business writer, wrote a thing, said once the computer comes, we don't need any middle management. There's no reason to have them because all they do is transfer information. Okay, how many people do you think worked in the United States in 1969? 80 million. How many people work in the United States today? About 160 million. Population in the United States back then, 220 million. Population now, 330 million. 80 million people more went to work from 1969 to now with only a population of 100 million. Women came in the workforce. We, that 100 million growth had a lot of immigration in it. That immigration means you aren't waiting 18 years to get an 18-year-old, right? So you get a you get an inbuilt 18-year-old or 21-year-old. So it, it, that's the thing. Everybody says, well, we'll do this in kindergarten. We'll have it. You said, okay, you got to wait 21 years, okay, or 18 years. So it takes 18 years to get the 18-year-old. That is science. That one I'll think people will. <laughs> so, so, so all that took place. And by the way, what happened from the personal computer to now was just tremendous jobs were created. And we had a constitutional crisis of higher order. We had an impeachment of the president, had to resign. We had, you know, just think about all this stuff. You know, war in Vietnam, the college campuses erupting, you know, shooting. And still, here we are. Mm -hmm. That's the power of democratic capitalism. That's the power of having that. And so, long answer to a simple question, I guarantee the millennials are going to have a great prospect. Um, but it's because just the system will do it. And it'll shift and ebb and flow, and some people will have more and some people have less. But if you concentrate on one thing, it's the, making sure that people at, at the baseline have the highest standard of living in the world, and then everybody else can do everything they can do, no matter who they are, and no matter what they look like, no matter what college they went to, no matter what community college they went to, or whether they went to college. And just let it rip, that's a hell of a thing. But we gotta make sure that people at the bottom live at the highest standard of the world, so we're the envy of the world for people to come here. Excellent. Sanjeev. Thank you for coming to the City Club. Um, my question is, what impact do you think cryptocurrency will have on the banking in the industry? Will it be a, an opportunity, a threat, or irrelevant? Um, so it, embedded in that are, there are two, different, two or three different parts of that. A part is uh, moving money digitally. And today, you know, even our consumer business, about 60% of the money moves digitally by our consumers. And, and by the way, that doesn't count when you use your physical credit card. So if you added that to it, which is just a representation of a digital transaction, it'd, it'd be a lot harder. So it's not a new concept to move money digitally, right? Um, and on the institutional space, 99.9%. .9%. I mean, everything moves digitally in terms of dollar volumes. That's you know, three or four trillion dollars a day, so it's a big number. So, so money moves digitally. Um, so the debate is, you know, what about, uh, you know, so what's the business case that these things are trying to solve? And there, 
different aspects to that. But from a currency perspective, because of speculation, I'll let you guys all decide what you want to do there. But, but from a currency aspect, you know, the idea of moving money in instantaneous value is kind of interesting. 24 by 7, kind of interesting. And so where we as industry, things like Zelle and things like that are basically moving money, and you don't really care whether you have a coin or a bank account. You just want, you as a customer want to have access to money. By the way, the credit card system is a pretty good system. You go to all these places you've never been in your life, you hand them this piece of plastic, and you get a nice dinner. It's pretty fantastic. <laughs> I mean, think about it. And you don't have to worry about anything. You get, you get your dinner. You pay. So I think there, there's cross-border applications of small balance transfers that seem to have high tariffs to them. There's uh, delay in settlement. Now we have a real-time system that, uh, the bank industry has a real-time system up and operating. It's going on now. We're rolling it out. You had, you know, P2P payment system. But kind of, Zelle kind of took care of that, and it's growing uh, strong. Um, the Zelle transactions sent by our customers exceed the number of checks written uh, by a lot now, and then pretty soon it'll catch both checks written and cash transactions out of the ATMs. So the the dollar, not the dollar volume, but the number of transactions. So, you know, so you look at all that and you sort of say, so what's the business case? And I think. You know, there, you know, that's what we've always struggled. And then there's the blockchain itself. That we have uh, 300 patents on so far, and we believe in it. We're still trying to find where the real business application is for, but we have that. And we believe that technology is interesting, uh, a, a public ledger and, and, and stuff like that, a verify. And by the way, that's not a new concept. If you have a mortgage, you, you, ha you, you have a public ledger that says you own that, or have a deed, a home, it's registered. And if somebody has a mortgage, they have the credit on it. And both of those are public record, and it's irrefutable. And that's what the blockchain does, but in a whole different way across jurisdiction, in a whole different way, automation, a whole different way. Um, and it can move documents and stuff, so we find that interesting. But the actual currency question uh, is one that we're still trying to figure out what, what's going on, because meanwhile, the, you know, the electrification of cash. So we built this real-time system that will settle, because on the weekends, if you wanted to buy a car, you'd have to take the cashier's check in for day four, have a heck of a credit card, uh, empty card, or you either have the person trust you, let you drive the car off and get the check in Monday morning, and all, or you want to close the house on the weekend and stuff. With a real-time payment system and a 24 by 7 close wire system, which the Fed is building A and we hope builds B, and if they don't, we'll just emulate it. You know, I think you'll get to the point where you can operate commerce all day, all day long in sizable amounts. And then on the international, you know, basically the industry is tying together its real-time systems around the world, so then a verified bank account in Spain and, and, and Cleveland can exchange money through those two things. And you'll feel it's, you, you, you'll, it'll be like doing Zelle with somebody else in Cleveland. It just will go to somebody at Santander in, in Spain. So that all this is coming. So I, I'm trying to figure out what the value of the currency. Now, when you go to other countries and they want to be a central bank currency and use a getaway from dollar, that's interesting, but uh, we'll see. Seems dangerous. Go ahead. Mr. Moynihan, how, um much of an impact do you think our current technology had, smartphones, the social media, in causing or accelerating the bank runs we had earlier this yeah. year? And how concerned are you about that technology causing or accelerating bank runs in the future? Thank you. I, I, think, um, I, I think it's something that we need to study further, but you haven't seen it had impact on other institutions. And so I think it, I think it had more to do with the individual uh, two things, the, uh, 
the movement had to do with the customer group. You know, there's, if you read the reports, a small number of customers had a lot of stuff. And then secondly, they could communicate fast together. Whether they did it by text or by calling each other would have made a lot of difference. So that's just a reality. And so that may change uh, the nature of it. Um, there were a lot of other factors, which, you know, if you read some of the reports, understand and how, how uh, and that were there. But, uh, you know, digitization has changed everything, and so we'll, we'll keep studying. When you go outside that and look elsewhere, it, it didn't have an impact elsewhere. So it had to be something unique to those companies because everybody has digital banking. And, and that had to do with the nature of the business and the nature of the customer base being very, very uh, concentrated. Uh, Tom Bullock, Lakewood City Council. Mr. Moynihan, thanks for your wonderful comments on capitalism that uh, puts profits and purpose together to solve problems for the world. I think that deserves a round of applause because I haven't heard that all that frequently. It's not, it's not a new concept, but... Uh, <laughs> but it's good that you're, yeah. you're devoted to it. So my question is, um, is uh, environmental social governance yeah. business practices, are they here to stay? Uh, second, how helpful do you find it when attention-seeking politicians attack those as a culture war issue? Yep. And finally, when will business investors decline to finance the campaigns of radical politicians who vandalize our democracy and our communities? Uh, you know, I think... Can you this take those a, in order? Yeah. <laughs> I'll take the last one first. Look, this is what democracy is all about. And... You know, it, people have opinions and they support the opinions and they run for office. It, it's, it, it's, you know, I, I was an American history major and I had the great fortune of arriving at college with a guy named Gordon Brown, uh, uh, Gordon Wood, excuse me. Gordon Wood was the uh, history professor at Brown at the time and he was a young popular story. And see, by Henry Steele Commager, if you're not a history buff, you know, and uh, David Bailey and all these guys and they come talk. And, but Gordon was like, and he wrote a lot about it. And if you go back and read his books, even in the founding, this place had a lot of wild, diff wildly different views that would be considered to be, you know, and so it's always been like that. And that's, that's why it works, because in it, it chops them up and sorts them out over time. And, and so we have to be careful that we don't do things. But I think, you know, I think that said, if, if you go back to it, the, the heart of your question, which is uh, the first part of it is about, look, we don't, we, we as companies drive things that are important to our customers, our teammates, our shareholders, and then that is the societal part. We can't be strong in Cleveland unless Cleveland's strong, because we're just gonna reflect it. And so, and so our job is to help make it strong. So what, what we do around jobs, or what we do around even the arts, is really geared towards helping people understand uh, the value of the arts. And so there's a great quote that's attributed to Winston Churchill, which I haven't, it, it, like all Winston Churchill things, it, he may have said 20% of them, but everybody thinks he said 100% of them. But, and, and the story is he's going into Parliament and he's carrying the red box with the, and he's presenting the budget or whatever the thing is in the middle of the, the blitz and uh, everything. And you know, they're getting bombed and they're spending every dollar and they're rationing and everything's going to the war effort. And you know, somebody said, let's cut the funding for the art museums. And he basically said, you know, if, what are we fighting for if we're going to cut that? So even the arts are critical to the success of great cities and, and, and communities and even rural towns. And now in virtual space, they're available much more. So, so I think the idea of supporting all the things we support has to do that. So 
as you make decisions, we make decisions that are important in that area. And so, you know, the decisions we make a lot about our team, when you have 200,000 plus people and they have 600,000 family members and you make decisions, it's, and we have people who believe everything politically, I guarantee, in our company. You know, think about, we're all over the world, all over the United States, you know, all over age groups, all over everything. And, you know, you just, you have to do what's gonna help those teammates be successful in our company. And so, and, you know, if you make your decisions on risk, what's good for the company, what's good for the shareholder, I don't think they're making it for another purpose. And that's, that's the point we're trying to make here, which is this is capitalism sort of done the, right way, done the right way, done aligned with this. And then it won't be, people won't try to substitute a different system in. And that's, that's the debate that goes on that makes me worry, is that somebody thinks there's some other system that are definitively proved not to work that would do better. So you go on an average college camp, campus and ask, you know, in, a, in, the, in the economics class, who, you know, what's their views of capitalism? It'll be interesting for you. And so we have to give people why a big company like ours or a bunch of big companies or a bunch of any companies can do the things the right way that actually show you the value of capitalism because you wouldn't have the great things you have in any place in America without that capitalist system, without that capitalist system thinking about how it impacts society. And when it gets too far that, it gets pushed back in the box. Over pollutes, does this, you know, employee safety, you know, they get regulated back. But what you want is to be, to fix it before that, because when it comes to regulation, typically it, it goes past the point of pain. So I don't know if that makes sense to you. Thank you. Every four years, experts talk about the effect of the presidential election on the economy. Yeah. Um, this one may be more volatile than other elections, and I wondered if you could talk about what you foresee as the effect, and also from your perspective of the correlation that, you know, sometimes Americans make a correlation that one party is better than another, but how, where that perspective comes from? Uh, usually when people are trying to cheer for one party, another party is where the perspective comes from. So, uh, because objective facts are, you know, it keeps going sort of, the oldest part of our company, it was founded in 1784. So when people, when the election cycle the last few years you know, came up and everybody was really worried about it, I used to say, look, it, I could ask a question, I'd say, we've been around for some tough elections. That one in 1800 was really tough. <laughs> <laughs> and they made a nice show out of it, right? Yeah. And so, and, and those of you actually know the story even more, the Butter House of Conspiracy, which ended up, uh, he was brought up for uh, treason afterwards. Um, so, yeah, the vice president of the United States was brought up for treason. Not impeached, brought up for treason after, after he left office. That's kind of interesting, right? Yeah. And so, you know, so I think the idea is a company like ours is to keep trying to do the right thing in all those dimensions I talked about, be consistent, and be mindful that you know, the elected office comes and goes, but the people who have a 50-year career in the company are going to be here through the 13, I think it would be the math, election cycles. You know, the people who have, you know, it's, and our company is going to be here for a lot more election cycles. So the idea is if you sit there and say, I'm going to do this because X gets elected, I'm going to do that because Y gets elected, you're going to swing the company away. So you have to be consistent. And so do you want people who see the value of you know, free enterprise, capitalism, all that stuff? Yes. Uh, but that doesn't mean that's restricted to one 
person's ideas and stuff. So, um, and so, so I think the idea is just to, as the business community is to, you know, make our points known, make our advocacy known. We have to be part of the uh, process to make sure things don't go in a way that doesn't make sense for uh, growth and prosperity and, and things. But on the other hand, be mindful that we also have to support the fact that we have to take care of what falls out of the capitalism. We have to be mindful of that. We have to help educate. We have to help deliver that. And, and that, then I think, any politicians for that. And uh, you know, I, I have, this is a wonderful company, it gives me wonderful opportunities, but you know, wherever you go in the world, the general ask of the business community by the political side is to help them be successful. That's not a hard ask to fulfill, you know. So, and, but you, you can't do it based on a political view. You've got to base it on it's, it's good for the society view, and this person may or may not be there. And that's, I mean, I've, I, I don't know how many prime ministers of the UK in my 14 years I've seen, you know. And, uh, and so it's not like they're not going to change. Our UK business has 6,000 people, and I can't change it based on what's going on. I, I, who's elected? I have to, we have, the team there that runs it has to run it on a consistent basis. So I, I, I try to, it's a little hard to understand when you get in, you know, you know today you have a screening court decision, what does it mean to this or that, or this person got elected, this person said that, and you're saying, okay, I can spend all my time chasing those things, or I can basically say, let's go run the company the right way. Go ahead. Thank you. Yeah. Perhaps one final question around capitalism. Do you have any guiding principles as you are considering different strategies to implement that balance the short-term predictable gains that private investors or analysts are looking for versus creating long-term sustainable shareholder value? Sure. So, you know, that, oddly enough, these, the metrics I spoke about called it, that the International Business Council put out that match up to the, to the sustainable development goals, that we had the big four accounting firms go out. So we knew companies could do this because we had accounting firms go find 20-odd metrics that would prove that we are doing what they want from the SDGs. So in those metrics, you know, they're people plan prosperity and principle governance and so, and so that's what we look at. We originally built those as a sort of debate between short-termism, because that was kind of raging for a while. And, and so as a business community, we were, and the ideas were like, okay, let's, let's force long-term, we'll quit doing quarterly reports, the stuff that was just not gonna happen. The answer was, if you show people that over time, you're accomplishing both a short-term and a long-term, and it's pro that's profits and profits. That's not profits and purpose because you you, you got to be profitable in both dimensions. And then, then but you have to show people you also, you're making a progress. And that was the disclosure. And then you could say, look, you know, here's here's our diversity. Here's our how we pay our taxes. Here's our scope one two emissions and our controllable scope three emissions. But here's the third year in a row we've disclosed. Now you can see the progress or lack of progress. And. So we built that, and so I think you can get out of the short term. Now, when we think about decisions in the company, we, we especially in a business when you, you are always thinking multiple years out while you're worried about tomorrow afternoon, but, but you can't, our business doesn't move fast enough to do short term stuff. You know, so, so if you go back and talk about what we've done around teammates over the years. I started, the I started with a management team. We took over the company in 2010. We had 285,000 people. So this management team sat there. Went up to 305,000 people. We have 213,000 people at the end of this quarter. That sounds like you took 
We just let attrition work. We did it, and in that time, the starting wage has gone from about $10 an hour to 22. The average wage has gone up by 25%. The ownership by the employees is up a lot. We're in the sixth straight year of a uh, specialized bonus. Remember, ta around tax changes in 17, everybody gave a one-time thing. We did, we've done six years, four or five billion dollars of stock. Delivered employees above all else comp to get their ownership interest, to get them aligned, to get them to long term. So I think you, you always have to think, so with the change we made in benefit plans in 2011, for every under fifty thousand dollars, we dropped their premium cost for lack of we're self-insured, but think about it as a premium in half. And we've never raised it. Is directly resulting in the turnover rate in the entry-level jobs dropping from thirty percent to ten percent. That saves me a lot of money. So you have to be thinking about it. It wasn't going to pay back. The health and wellness stuff we do won't pay any anybody on my management team was tenure back because it's going to save things 20 years out in terms of health care cost. And, you know, but you have to be thinking about that stuff. But it's the right thing to do for the employees and, you know, and their families. And, that, and so you're always thinking about the long-term, short-term. But you, you can't, they're, they're not, it's not as binary. It's things you do incrementally that build up to be long-term. The investment we made in AI to bring out Erica eight years ago, before anybody knew what it was, now it's 20 million customers using it, and everybody says we have, the, we have the only thing that really does. It's a very simple form of it, but, but that was because we made it years ago, but we made it based on a customer decision. It wasn't, we're going to wait eight years and see if it works. It was literally, we deployed it after a couple of years and do it. So I think you have to be, in our industry especially, you're always making long-term decisions, but you, you, you want to make them consistent. You want to be consistent. You want to do an eye on both, but you have to do both. And that's because this company's been around for 240 years, and the oldest part of it, I'm going to be here like a nanosecond in the life of it, and my management team, the same thing. I've had 30 years with the company. 30 out of 240 years is not a lot. And it'll go on. So you have to leave a better wood pile, the wood pile bigger than when you, you know, all that type of analogy, and that's what we do. Great. Thank you. Oh, thank you. That's, our, that's it. You asked me earlier if you were going to survive. I think you did okay. okay. Brian Moynihan, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. And so I just urge one thing. Go out and do something that drives capitalism, shows people how it works right, because that's, that's, that's what we need to keep doing, and then we'll all be fine. Really glad we got to yeah. talk about that. Yeah. We'd like to thank Bank of America, their staff, and, 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 and their, uh, for their partnership on today's forum. Thank you so much. Up next at the City Club, tomorrow at Jacobs Pavilion, June 30th, for the 2023 State of the County with County Executive Chris Ronane. It's a rescheduled event. It was supposed to be yesterday. We had to, we had to shift it due to air quality. Um, and we are thinking good thoughts about our friends to the north, by which I mean Canada, not Michigan. Um, <laughs> After the holiday weekend, we'll return on Friday. Do you have bad thoughts for the friends? <laughs> no, no, I just, I don't have, I don't think about this A bunch of people are going to come down from Detroit and kick your butt. <laughs> After the holiday weekend, we'll return on Friday, July 7th, to hear from Pastor Mike McBride of Live Free USA on community-led efforts to reduce gun violence in our neighborhoods. Evelyn Burnett with Third Space Action Lab will moderate that conversation. You can learn more about these forums and others at cityclub.org. Once again, thank you, members and friends of the City Club. Thank you, Brian Moynihan. Our forum is now adjourned. Thank you so much, sir. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org.
production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.